Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast Series with California Technology Council and Foley and Lardner. Now we turn over to Matt Gardner in our Northern California studios. Well, hi again, everyone. It's Matt Gardner. Welcome to the AI Series with Foley and Lardner. On today's program, we're talking with friend of the program, Bo Norjot, about all the impacts that AI is having on healthcare decisions and support analysis. We go through novel systems, who's paying for innovation, treatment paradigms, interoperability, and lots of the long view of patient data and analysis. We hope you enjoy this episode in our AI series. Before we begin, Here's a quick word from our partners at Foley and Lardner. Foley and Lardner is pleased to present this AI podcast series in partnership with the California Technology Council as part of our combined efforts to help foster high-tech innovation, collaboration, and growth across the state and beyond. With a geographic reach spanning the entire country, including offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego, Foley and Lardner provides comprehensive legal services to both innovators and consumers of sophisticated and increasingly convergent technologies at all stages of the business life cycle and across nearly every industry sector. Drawing on our extensive experience and deep knowledge across our team of lawyers, scientists, developers, and engineers, we counsel clients on the full spectrum of corporate and transactional, intellectual property, and regulatory and policy matters, as well as provide representation in a variety of litigation and disputes. So no matter where your business plugs into the ever-evolving global market, whether your offering is underpinned by AI, the cloud, 5G, the Internet of Things, virtual reality, quantum computing, or another technology, Foley and Lardner can help keep you on the leading edge of emerging legal issues and in pursuit of growth opportunities. Visit us at Foley.com to learn more. Hi, this is George Nachetti of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And you're listening to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with the California Technology Council. Thanks to the entire team at Foley and Lardner, and of course to our partners at Morgan Stanley for the excellent retirement plan member benefits at CTC. If you'd like to learn more, we invite you to check out www.californiatechnology.org slash member benefits. Now here's our conversation with Bo Norjot. All right, welcome to another episode of the Artificial Intelligence Series with the California Technology Council and Foley and Lardner. We're here with friend of the program, Bo Norjot. Bo, thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're a, uh, a doctor in a combination of deep learning and personalized medicine. Can you tell us about that sort of unique space that you're an expert in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it was it was definitely very intentionally chosen. Uh, I actually got started applying statistical learning, machine learning methods in medicine uh, quite a while ago, but I started much lower down on the chain from a biology perspective, meaning that my, my first work was building computational methods to help guide the engineering of uh, small proteins called peptides um, as therapies for metastatic melanoma. And from there, I went on to uh, applications in the omic space, so uh, mostly on the uh, DNA side, some you know genotype phenotype work um, and large scale distributed um, genome alignment. And all of that, from my perspective was was great, but it was a little bit too far away from the patient outcomes that I really cared about. And so I, I went back to school at, at UCSF um to pursue research really right at that intersection of where you know advanced learning methods hit patient outcomes um, and and for me the things that i've been most excited about have, have really been understanding uh what actions we can take so being able to understand this sort of causal effect of different interventions that we might apply how can we learn from data from the decisions that we've been making in the past to make better decisions for each patient that we treat um, today. So that's a lot that you've just covered. And, and obviously, we, um, we're struggling with this as a society. There are a lot of issues wrapped up in this. Even the FDA keeps kind of issuing and reissuing its sort of consideration of um, all these technology tools for uh, 
treatment decisions and support analysis. So obviously everyone's going through all these issues. So maybe we could uh, pull the camera up to, you know, this sort of 10,000 foot level. And um, can you talk to us a little bit about how far we've come? I would say even just a few years ago, we would have been talking about how much struggle it is to cope with all the data we're generating. Um, as, as a field, has data science come far enough that it's, you know, sort of ready to play? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, um, and, and and one that I have, I guess, sort of an ambiguous answer to. I, um, you know, I think we're, I think the the end of my response is going to be well, it depends on exactly what application we're talking about, but uh, you know, I think if we start with the first part of data science, which is data, right? Uh, a few years ago, we lacked enough healthcare. Data. We lacked enough digital healthcare data to be able to use even moderately sophisticated learning algorithms. And, and to be to be fair, actually, we we lacked enough data to even do proper descriptive statistical analyses. And that has changed. That that's changed dramatically. We're we're seeing larger and larger digital healthcare data that spans more and more diverse patients in more diverse settings. So the the raw material is there, I think. Um, and then within the, the medical and healthcare space, if we sort of break that data up into its different domains, we see tremendous differences, I think, uh, in the current state of the art. So for example, uh, medical image analysis, uh, uh, you know, computer vision from other fields is really well established. And we see tremendous um, gains in computer vision applications in the medical domain. Um, natural language processing is uh, growing um, in, in power because of these massive data sets outside of healthcare, right? That, that are available to be able to train language models and the applications of language models. And so we're seeing good crossover there, I think, into the clinical domain as well. Uh, the, Unfortunately for me, the kinds of data that I'm most interested in are, are generally longitudinal data types. So being able to, you know, look at a patient's past to be able to forecast their future, for example, um, or look at a patient's past and decide which action is going to result in, in the best future for them. And there, I think we have a very long way to go. Um, it, you know, longitudinal forecasting sort of techniques from, you know, deep, or, deep learning or other methodologies uh, have all been designed around data sets that are fundamentally really different than healthcare data sets. So, you know, an easy comparison here would be finance, right? I mean, we've seen some amazing things on the algorithm side from finance. And uh, that data is evenly distributed, right? So you've got data points collected at very specific points in time. Uh, they are rich data sets, so you're never missing data. Um, and you know, in healthcare, it's the it's the exact opposite, right? We have we have very sparse, very lumpy data. Um, it is unevenly um, distributed, or it's unevenly collected. So, for you know, an easy example is uh, you might go and see your doctor once a year, and somebody with a similar health trajectory as you might go and see their doctor once every three months, and someone else might not go to see their doctor at all. Um, and that presents that means that. Uh, there aren't any extremely good methods that we can borrow from other fields. So this is where the data science folks um, in the medicine space are having to innovate a lot. So can I actually ask you to, to play with a crude example to sort of flesh out where the state of the industry is a little bit on the, uh, the image analysis comment you made is, uh, I think, a really interesting one because of you know, for example, personal health records, x-rays, this massive amount of information we have in our health files and how useful it actually is. And the, the very crude example I'd like to ask you about is, are we at the point yet where our holistic view of the patient includes the ability to integrate image files from a record with basic data and measurement, like for example, chest x-rays and an EKG. Are we at that point? Are, are we 
five years beyond that? Are we still trying to figure out how to put those things together to look for signals? Um, do we not have enough analysis of things like, you know, x-ray data? Those are huge files, right? So the minute that you try and store those things, I believe for cancer patients that it's mandated that uh, x-rays are saved, but that may not be true for, for everyone, right? So you've got inconsistency of the treatment of some of these image files as well, or, or, or is this example not um, uh, sophisticated enough to actually tell us where we're at today? Yeah, that's, that's another really good question. And I, I, um, I can speak from my experience, but it may not be, you know, universal for, um, for everybody. I think there's really good evidence to, uh, to suggest that we can combine image data with other patient data to uh, predict outcomes or to help with diagnoses in a research setting. Uh, I think we're a long way away from being able to do that systematically in the sort of quote unquote real world. Um, the, you know, the, the data systems that support hospital and clinic work, right? Like our EHR systems simply weren't designed to do that. Uh, they, you know, they weren't designed for uh, online information retrieval and they weren't designed um, to help facilitate decision-making. And in order to, there's plenty of people who are working on solving those problems. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to be a long time before your doctor uh, is, you know, is doing that when you go in to see him or her. Okay, thanks for that. So um, sort of back to the progression of, um, you know, the use and massaging of all this data we've accumulated. Uh, how does machine learning plug into that uh, on top of the, the data science field and um, help us begin to look for patterns and, and um, you know, use all this information? Yeah, I think, uh, I think machine learning, deep learning, reinforcement learning, whatever, um, you know, whatever the current sort of state of the art or whatever your interest is, is sort of the, it's the cherry on top of the cake. Um, and I mean that in a, um, not just in an analogous way, but in a very sort of like in, in how time is spent as well, right? And so every project that I have been involved in is 95 and a half percent data pipelines and data cleaning and data engineering uh, you know, one or one or two percent um, exploratory data analysis afterwards, and then you run some machine learning uh, on top of that. And it's the machine learning uh, that gets all of the excitement, all of the hype, all of the credit. Um, and in some ways, that's that's fair. Um, and you know, but in other ways, uh, it doesn't really reflect the reality of the situation, which is that um, you're your fancy deep learning algorithm is more likely to fail because of a data engineering problem uh, than it is um, because you haven't been able to select the right architecture or hyperparameters for the for the model. So, uh, you know, assuming that you have a good engineering pipeline and that you have really good labels for your data or a problem that or you're addressing a problem that perhaps doesn't require labels, then um, you know we're seeing amazing advances. I think from an algorithmic side, uh, you know, from from my own experience, some of the papers that we have published that have just looked at the differences between, you know, something like a, a random forest, uh, for example, you know, very trusted, tried and true algorithm. Uh, compared to model, you know, deep learning models in the recurrent family that are actually time aware. And we see, you know, we've seen some am amazing differences, you know, for sort of binary classification things, differences that are like more than 10%, right? Um, so I, I think uh, the more flexible models that are coming out now and everybody, there's so many brilliant people who are thinking of different ways to be able to uh, begin to build algorithms that really segregate signal from noise across these massive uh, high dimensional feature spaces, especially if your 
propagating those through time. Um, so I, I, I think there's a ton of promise. I think we're going to see a, a continued explosion in, in algorithm design over the next few years. So you mentioned uh, melanoma at the beginning during your sort of earlier study. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting example to me too, because cancer data is so relatively rich as it's been you know, collected kind of better. The spaces with bigger investment, cardiovascular and, and oncology tend to have deeper data sets. Does this mean that we're better at using AI looking at, at you know, richer data fields or not necessarily at all? Um, I, I think the answer here, unfortunately, is that it depends as well. So you, if you imagine two extremes, right, in one case, you have a relatively small amount of extremely rich data. So, you know, you've got a, a ton of data points on a, on a small number of people, which is generally true for cancer, right? Um, and on the other case, you've got a, a, a relatively small number of data points on a huge number of people cardiovascular outcomes, diabetes, right? I mean, pretty much any chronic condition. Um, each of those present different learning challenges. Uh, in the former, one of the things that's helped with on the cancer side is, uh, you know, from the image, from an image space, for example, the ability um, to use transfer learning or, or some variation thereof has made it so that you can leverage a massive data set and then apply it to this really small data set. And then additionally, you've got all of these other rich points that, that you've talked about. Um, there are some conditions that, that, there are some cases where that is really difficult. So for example, in oncology, if your goal is to uh, not help with diagnosis or prognosis, but you want to be able to help identify which treatment is gonna be best for a patient with a particular type of cancer. Um, then I think the small number of data points available is actually harmful. Uh, so I, yeah, I think I think it's still a bit of a mixed bag, uh, and I do think that cardiology is probably the closest to being able to get a really rich um, set that also has size. Um, but uh, even there, we tend to have a huge number of data points. For a relatively small number of people, right? If you've got a lot of data points, that probably means that you have really good health care coverage. Um, it also probably means that you're older, um, you know, at least in your 50s, but probably in your mid to late 60s. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think I think we still have have a long way to go. Um, and the you know the one data point that you didn't discuss that's exploding now is sort of um, wearables, right? Consumer wearables. So for a lot of the chronic conditions, you know, the, the use of wearables, I think, may really change the, the game here because those wearables solve a lot of the problems that I had talked about with healthcare data. They're, they're very rich. They're collected at, you know, perfectly regular time intervals. And they're becoming more... Um, Distributed, meaning, you know, a few years ago, the only people wearing something like an Apple Watch were uh, extremely well-paid techies, right? And and that's not that's not the case anymore. So we're you know we're starting to see people that actually reflect at least the American population um, wearing wearables. And as we combine that, I think with healthcare data, we, you know, in the next few years, we may start to see some very exciting data sets um, from an algorithmic perspective, but also from, a, you know, being able to forecast, predict, diagnose uh, health conditions as well. So I want to sort of lead into how this is helping the patient. But before I do that, or on the way to that, ask you about personalized medicine, because of course, our idea of what personalized medicine is, has changed greatly over the last 15 years. And we might have just said 15 years ago, you know, a uh, multivariate index assay was helping us personalize treatment or a companion diagnostic should become mandated. You know, we might have said 10 years ago. Uh, we're headed toward a completely different look at this now. So on our way into uh, addressing the individual patient, can you talk about sort of what how your view of what personalized medicine is has evolved over that time. 
Yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm I'm chuckling here because I can I can distinctly remember at at some point there was a paper that I was writing and I was trying to make personalized reference or personalized medicine references, and finally realized that uh, it seemed quite possible that my definition of personalized medicine was not necessarily shared with. Uh, perhaps by any other person on the planet. And so, uh, it, you know, after digging uh, around, looking through, you know, other papers and just how other people were using it, I realized that this wasn't in fact true, that, you know, there's almost many different definitions of personalized medicine. I think we all started in the same place. You know, personalized medicine was essentially related to omics in some way. And I think now, if I were to provide like a, a mile high view of what it is. It, you know, it might have just, you know, anything to do with uh, medicine in the context of an individual person. You know, um, how is how does this diagnosis reflect my personal biology? That's sort of an, that might be an omics thing. Um, which treatment option is best for me? Um, let's say from a clinical outcomes perspective. Uh, but there's also uh, which treatment option is most palatable for me. Um, so I, yeah, I think, I think all of this is changing. And all I can say from my perspective at this point is that I sort of embrace that mile high view of, uh, you know, tell me, you know, hey, Mrs. Doctor, uh, tell me how your diagnosis or your decisions uh, is relevant for me personally, uh, including as many factors about myself as you can include. All right, you just uh, hinted at a, a question a little bit down the road about who actually is the consumer of this treatment decision support tool, right? So that's a, that's a question by itself. Before we get to that though, can you <laughs> give us a little bit of a sense of what AI can actually do with um, you know, large scale uh, prior treatment outcomes uh, when mashed up together with um, current patient data. Yeah, um, I mean, this is, this is the thing that I'm, or these are the things that I'm most excited about personally. So I, I think there's two really broad categories of things that, that can be done. So one is, and the one that I think most directly addresses your question, is uh, we can make this data available to decision makers to help guide the decisions that, that they make. So, uh, for example, if you've got a patient sitting in front of you who's a 65-year-old man with type 2 diabetes whose most recent hemoglobin a1c was like nine and a half percent uh and they you know have two other chronic health conditions um and they're they're just being treated with metformin right um an example of of what i think algorithms can do now uh or could be doing now uh, is to perform an appropriate analysis, we'll leave the analysis as a black box for a moment, but you know, they can go and look at the records of uh, other patients who fit this person's criteria, right? You know, uh, same age, same chronic health conditions, control for other confounding variables, and push those results back to the provider and just say, hey, uh, we saw 80 different treatment options for people like this person in front of you. Um, and here are the results of those 80 across the 5,000 people that you know we observed them on. And, and nothing, to be clear, I, I think that is the extent of what we should be shooting for for AI in the sort of decision-making space. Uh, we should be providing all of the data in a distilled form uh, so that a human being can uh, use that in conjunction with everything else they know and everything else they see about the person in front of them and uh, use it to drive a decision. And in the same way that like, you know, Google Maps doesn't uh, 
determine where you're going to go and the exact route. It says, hey, you know, if you want to get from A to B, here are your two or three options. Uh, here's how long it's going to take. Uh, go for it. <laughs> um, so that so that's one side. I think we can aid uh, in pushing relevant insights to decision makers. The, the other thing, though, that I think is really important and is still under tapped is the ability to put the patient a little bit closer to the driver's seat. And in order to do that, uh, what we really need are tools that help uh, everyday people understand the implications of their own health status um, and also the implications of uh, intervention options, treatment options available to them. And I, there I think AI has a tremendous opportunity to be able to communicate uh, extraordinarily complex things uh, to people in a way that empowers them. Well, there, that's the, that was the million dollar question uh, we were talking about a minute ago. So is the system really prepared to put this kind of decision analysis in the hands of the patient? Um, do, is that the way uh, I probably shouldn't ask you this question, but is that the way Medicaid and Medicare are set up? Who who's paying for the decision support? It, this is a those are societal questions, right? I guess we need adults in the room to decide how that should be required to be processed. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. It, it's really it, it's challenging. So let, let me answer the first question first, which is: Are we ready to put the um, this sort of decision-making into the hands of the patient or the consumer? And I think there the answer is no, we're not. Um, and uh, I, I think we should acknowledge that that might be a big part of where we want to go, uh, but we have a very, very long way to get there. And so what we should be trying to do is sort of baby step our way in. So for example, uh, instead of having, instead of trying to design an algorithm that's gonna help a patient choose uh, which treatment path they specifically want for their melanoma, um, we might instead uh, be using our AI to help uh, describe to people uh, what their specific melanoma is and what their prognosis looks like, right? Just in a way that they can um, understand it. And we can, yeah, and then we can scale into greater and greater levels of sort of ownership and involvement over our own health over time. The second question though of, uh, um, you know, truly who the consumer is and who is paying for this is nuanced, right? The, the old paradigm for healthcare is there are, these, there are these three pillars that make up the healthcare system, right? You have uh, pharma, you have providers, and you have payers. And what's fascinating about that is that there's no pillar for the patient. There's no pillar for the person that it, all of this stuff is actually happening to. And it, uh, it, it has interesting economic consequences as well, right? So, you know, one of them is that the, the person who ultimately is going to pay for this, it, I mean, at least in the next few years with the healthcare system that we have right now, is not the person that's gonna benefit from it the most. And, uh, you know, what do you do when the dog doesn't buy the dog food? <laughs> um, and so, you know, who do I think is most likely to benefit from all of this? Uh, I, I think it's the payers, ultimately, whether or not you're talking about a health insurance company, or you're talking about the federal government. Uh, you know, if we're building technology that makes people healthier over time, the organizations that stand to benefit from that financially the most are the people that are going to have to foot the bill um, in the long run. And so I think that's, I think that's the target audience, uh, you know, in the short term anyway. So, Bo, uh, before we go back to talking about uh, how to use uh, AI to improve those kinds of decisions for patients individually, are there other areas of treatment before we get into that, that, that you're excited about? Or, or are you starting to see yet things like cell and gene therapy actually make a difference in the whole field of personalized medicine that we were talking about a minute ago? 
Yes, I think so. And, you know, with, with full disclosure, uh, you know, I'm outside the field of either cell or gene therapy at this point. I've been uh, like a, a fanboy watching that from the periphery, right, as opposed to um, somebody actually contributing. I, I think uh, I think that these are extraordinarily impactful technologies. I also think uh, they're still in a little bit of a hype cycle. Um, and to be clear, I think AI is still in a hype cycle too. Um, and so, you know, we, we learned from the first wave of GWAS studies that it was entirely possible to come up with uh, findings that looked just amazingly precise and impactful in one setting that just completely fell apart when we tested them in a different population. And of course, that came from measuring, um, you know, measuring pretty simple genomic sequences where the potential harm was almost zero, right? Um, Cell and gene therapy is a very different thing. The potential benefit is substantially higher, but the potential harm is almost uh, incalculable. And so, I, you know, I think the I think the fields are advancing really rapidly and in, in extremely exciting ways. And those are some of my favorite papers to read and some of my favorite conversations to have. Um, but I think we'll see slower use of them as therapeutics than we had thought we would a couple years ago. Okay, so you just mentioned cost-benefit analysis, and that really is a, an onion I want to peel back a little bit more because the that whole question, obviously our, our society is not necessarily built on giving people walking around on the street uh, their own freedom to do risk analysis on every decision, right? So it's not an open question. Uh, so as a systems guy yourself, uh, can I ask you about that cost benefit analysis of using AI? So um, what should we ask it to do? What should we not ask it to do? And are we stopping it from doing certain things because of the risk? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, so we hear a lot about the risks of AI and uh, the concerns that people have when it makes mistakes. And I think there's a fundamental problem in that. Now I'm coming at this from a machine learning person's perspective, but the, the first thing you do in a machine learning study is you establish an appropriate baseline. And that's missing from this conversation. So, you know, we, we can have conversations about, you know, what happens when AI messes up uh, and harms a patient. And to be clear, that's going to happen. That it, that's going to be a reality. So my question is, uh, how often are doctors harming patients? And we know the answer to that, at, at least to a certain extent, right? There was a, a controversial study that came out of John, Johns Hopkins a few years ago that showed that medical mistakes were one of the leading causes of death in this country. So uh, I'm not bashing on uh, physicians in any way here, right? Medicine is extraordinarily complicated. Uh, so I, you know, how do we, you know, how do we measure um, benefits versus cost? We need we need an appropriate baseline in every clinical situation that we care about to say what is the current standard of care, what are the current benefits that we're seeing, and what are the current harms that we're seeing, and the answer for whether or not. Uh, AI should be used in a particular situation should be, can it provide a better portfolio? Can it provide a better ratio of risk to harm? Um, and if it can, um, in some way that we can trust, then that's really good evidence that we should use it. Is there a scenario where you can see today or in the foreseeable future where we're, you know, we've got enough data that we're asking AI to make a treatment decision for us? Or is that just too, too much jeopardy? Well, we're seeing AI being asked to make diagnostic decisions for us already, right? You know, there's multiple FDA approved um, algorithms for that. So, I, you know, I, I don't think that we're, 
I don't think that we're that far away. But, um, you know, diagnosis is something that is a little less controversial than a treatment decision, uh, irregardless of AI, right? Uh, you are more likely to get expert clinicians to agree on a diagnosis for a particular patient than you are to get them to agree on exactly what treatment should be given to that patient given that diagnosis. And because of that, I think uh, we are further away from having AI uh, actually make treatment decisions. And we, I, I think we're pretty firmly in this paradigm of uh, AI should be showing us what we think the causal attribution of different treatment options are and then putting it into the hands of uh, clinical decision makers, whether that's one person, for example, using that to guide a decision, or whether it's something like a tumor board, using that to um, guide a decision as a group. Yep, lots of medical committees that work here as well. Uh, okay, Bo, so that, that was a, a very um, uh, sort of, forward-looking thought about the paradigm that we're in and maybe cemented in for a while. Should we expect uh, the participation of the physician and their patient to evolve from that paradigm? And if so, what would it take to actually change it? Now I'm asking you to be predictive. So it's a terrible responsibility to have a crystal ball like that, but <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's been said that prediction is is very hard, especially about the future. <laughs> um, Mark Twain is that a Mark Twain? <laughs> I I feel like that got attributed to Yogi Berra, but uh, <laughs> uh, I can't say for sure. You know, I think um, while I can't predict what the future will look like. I can describe what I think the present needs to look like. Um, and maybe that sort of paints a direction for us anyway. So one thing that I think is, is critical for those of us on the technology side or the AI side uh, is to recognize that um, if we operate in a vacuum, we will fail. Uh, and we have seen examples of that in the past already. Um, and we need to learn from that. So when we're designing algorithms, we need to be designing them uh, with expert clinicians, right? Uh, when we're designing systems to deliver insights, we need to be designing those with clinicians and patients hand in hand uh, so that we're solving problems that people actually have in a way that they can actually utilize those solutions. Um, and so, you know, if you imagine, if we step back from that a little bit, so here's my, my mini um, vision into the future here. It, you know, if we take that paradigm and we imagine uh, starting with the interaction of a physician and their patient in the physician's office or through a telemedicine um, appointment, which maybe reflects the future a little bit more closely than an office appointment. And we simply ask what's missing right now from that, from that interaction. What does the physician need in order to be able, what can we abstract away from what the physician has been doing in the past so that they can focus just on the human being that's in front of them? Uh, what does the patient need in order to actually be a participant in this conversation instead of just someone who's being talked to? Um, and we start designing our technologies out from, from that perspective, I think we can imagine a very, very different paradigm, even in the near future. The question is whether or not we can uh, do that in a systematic enough way and get adoption for that uh, enough, um, because again, the people who are going to be paying for these technologies are not going to be the physicians or the patients. Uh, so that's a very big nut to crack. But if we can crack it, uh, I, th I think we see some pretty significant shifts in the paradigm of medicine in the near future. Okay, I, I want to stick with the crystal ball for a minute. So if we're entering into territory that you don't want to guess at, that's okay. So you just say no. But 
you know, we have a basic enough problem in keeping the monitoring running of whether grandma stays on her meds, right? So there's a there's a significant problem with our existing treatment information. So the return visit, the doctor still doesn't have great information on whether people have stuck to the program. We're also leaking other kinds of data, I would argue. So we just missed a generational hospital build in California. It's just taken place, right? So there's a whole new generation of hardware and the operating environment still is not great at interoperability. So we lose a lot of data that's otherwise live during surgery being monitored, but then not saved. So can, can you guess at where interoperability needs to go and what pieces of that measurement are most critical to focus on in the next decade if we have the opportunity to save more of it and, and reduce that leakage? So that that is a very broad and profound question, Matt. Uh, I'll, <laughs> do my, I'll do my best. Um, with it. So uh, there's, yeah, there's a ton of different components here. So I think um, at a really high level, what do we need to do? We need a closed feedback system, right? We need a system that is monitoring the patient journey uh, from beginning to end. And we we don't have that now. There, there are some systems that I think are closer to that, right? Um, an example that most people in California are really familiar with is, is Kaiser that's sort of trying to, to do that. At the very least, they are the provider and the payer. Um, so I think, you know, something like that is sort of a, a step in the right direction. Not that one organization has to be both of those, um, but there needs to be one system that's running across everything. And with such a system, um, I think you can begin to get into the issue of grandma uh, taking her meds, right? Um, so there are little bits of technology now uh, that are trying to address those. You know, we've, we've got um, smart uh, pills and uh, and things of that nature. And there's even um, video uh, options in there too, right? You know, have, we could actually record what people are doing throughout their house with, with, with their permission or with the permission of their loved ones. Uh, what's missing is that those are happening in isolation, right? For the most part, they're, they're not directly tied into this closed feedback system. And so I think the closed feedback system comes first. And from there, we start trying to chip away um, at the rest of the problems that we're missing. There's no hope for interoperability, is there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there is. I, I just think I, I can envision such a system. What I can't figure out yet is exactly who's gonna bring that system to market. And the same system has to be embedded in the anesthesiologist's hardware as the hospital's health record. That's a massive challenge. It, it is. I mean, it's not, it's, it's almost impossible if we try to go from where we are now to that state. Uh, I, I would argue that it's not so impossible if we build that system from the ground up. Yeah. Um, but I don't know who's going to build it. Um, and I, and I think we can all admit that it's not going to be a cheap system. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> as we, so that gets us back to the who's going to pay for it question. Um, but I think you know the financial implications of such a system. So I don't keep track of what our annual healthcare spend is in this country anymore. Like you know, once it hit like a gajillion trillion dollars, right. it, it became. Um, Sort of uninteresting, but you know, we we do know that our healthcare spend is growing much faster than our GDP is, and so you know, we know there's a day of reckoning coming with this at some point, um, and we also can probably guess that a decent solution to this is going to be worth trillions of dollars. Uh, so the financial incentive is there. We just have to figure out how to harness it. You you mentioned a little while ago one of the holy grail. Uh 
push points, which is longitudinal data. So who does that well? I, you know, we, we, I've done a startup myself on big data in, in oncology decisions and it didn't work. And you know, there, there are a bunch of holy grails wrapped up in it, but the VA has terrific longitudinal data. So are, are there places that you would point to or, or maybe it's industry segments uh, or indications that do this better? Are we stuck with cardiovascular and oncology again because they've got the most data? Or is, is, is there a system that is doing longitudinal data better than others? So I, I agree. I think the VA is, um, or I think the VA could be a poster boy for this. The VA has great data. It has poor data infrastructure. Um, so the data is there. It's very, very, very hard to work with. Uh, I've experienced that myself. Um, and it, but I think other healthcare systems are um, are beginning to do that really well. So chops, um, you know, is I, I think is a good example. And I think one of the and I think the longitudinal data problem is going to solve parts of it, I think will solve themselves uh, in that, you know, before collecting longitudinal data was really hard. Now that everything is digitalized, um, or is the right word digitized? Digitized, I think. Um, it, it's getting easier, right? I mean, it, it's getting so that it basically is just happening on its own. Uh, and then the question really becomes, how do we uh, access that data and leverage it to help drive decision making instead of just having it get written to disk and that be being the end of the story. So, you know, I think that there's um, I think there's a fair number of groups who are beginning to do this pretty well. And I think every, you know every year our health data is probably doubling or more. So, uh, so you know, 50 years from now, I don't think we'll be having these questions about longitudinal data, um, at least across particular types of longitudinal data. I sincerely hope we're not still asking questions about how we integrate different sources of longitudinal data. But if there was one thing I was worried, would be worried about, it would be that. So uh, last question for you is, is uh, probably unfair to put you on the spot. Uh, but is what... the answer seven? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm going to try and be harder on you than that. Uh, so, what gives you um, optimism in looking at all of these massive systems, the huge amount of information that we're now tracking, that there there is enough storage? Uh, I got to say, there probably is a, a a group of server farms that are competing against the Bitcoin farmers in other places. So there's a server farm short-term challenge, but that's a short-term point of pain. What are, the, what are the sort of factors giving you an optimistic outlook at where we're going with all these tools? Um, I guess I'm gonna answer this question in the reverse. Like I, I, I wanna go back to the financial problems that we have that, you know, Healthcare spend is growing disproportionate to GDP. We have the technology to create a solution to that problem. Uh, but of course, this, this solution doesn't exist yet. Um, but at some point, the pain of that exponentially rising healthcare cost is, is going to drive a solution, I think. So, you know, I think we've got the components. Um, the need is there, but it's still a little bit peripheral. Uh, you, you know, as soon as your governor's primary platform that he's running on or your president's primary platform that she's running on um, is, uh, if we don't solve this problem, we're going to have to sell the country to somebody else. Um, there will be enough motivation to take the data and the technology that already exist um, and actually leverage them. And that time so, maybe so next year. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> that was where I was going. I mean, you know, I uh, I have interactions um, more and more frequently with uh, politicians who are extremely interested in these questions, and they're thinking about who 
their constituents are and you know what a big impact uh, being able to improve health outcomes are because you know let's the U.S. is like we, we're sort of in the worst situation. We're the worst of both worlds, right? We have the highest spend and the worst outcomes. Uh, that's that should be shocking, and it should it should enrage uh, us as as Americans. Um, you know, we have been a technology first country <laughs> from the moment that we've. Uh, began since the, you know, since the first states were formed. Uh, and we are way behind right now. Uh, and there are opportunities to change that. And I think um, our political leaders, at least some of them on both sides of the aisle, are beginning to appreciate that and, uh, and really work towards a change. Hopefully that uh in terms of human progress is motivational and inspirational for change, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been an hour with Bo Norgeau. Thank you very much, Bo, for taking the time with us, doctor. Thanks so much, Matt. This was a lot of fun. We have a very special episode coming up next in our series in a discussion with several practitioners working on incredible applications of AI and treatment, especially as it relates to creating virtual reality environments for the treatment of patients in very specialized conditions. For now, that's it for this episode of the AI series with CTC and Foley and Lardner. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.